previously on No Offense. We will catch you all next week in our next No Offense podcast, which will not mention the words USAC in it. This week on No Offense. Hey, Keshav, what are we talking about today? Going to admit, I made a mistake last week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to No Offense, the Daily Bruins official opinion podcast. My name is Keshav Thadmiti, I'm the Daily Bruins opinion editor, and we have a lively crew with us today. Um, does everybody want to go around and introduce themselves? Hi, I'm Chris, an opinion columnist. Hi, I'm Liberty, a senior staffer. And I'm Abhishek, I'm one of the assistant opinion editors. You sound awfully tired, Liberty. What's going on? I flew off a bird today. I won't ask for the backstory. But speaking of backstories, we have a very big backstory to tell you all today. As the introduction implied, I made a mistake last week. I, you know, I, I disavowed USAC and I was like, we're never going to talk about it again. And then USAC decided to pummel me upside the head. Um, so, Abhishek, why the hell are we here talking about USAC? So, as we discussed last time, uh, Brunzi and I in general, general representative-elect Bella Martin was accused of voter coercion, and then election board investigated that, and they apparently didn't find that she was guilty of voter coercion, but they found that she was guilty of infringing upon a student's right to vote in privacy, and they gave Bruins United a three-hour campaign ban. And following that, some students were angry about, okay, this isn't enough of a punishment. So two students filed a petition against the election board to the judicial board, arguing that the election board didn't give is a severe enough punishment for what had happened. And I'm guessing that judicial board hearing wasn't as calm and pleasant as most would expect, right? Uh, Liberty, you, you were there at the judicial board hearing. Tell, tell us what you saw and heard, and I guess, yeah, wh- what, whatever went down there. I could go point by point, but I just want to praise Chief Justice Nick Yu, former <laughs> Daily Ruin Campus Politics Editor, for... His questioning of the petitioner and election board. As I was watching, I was reminded of a shark stalking its prey, circling tighter and tighter till he finally got the answer we all wanted. With the answer being that the election board made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, so this, so basically the judicial board hearing was like a murder mystery when it should have been like a questioning session. So here's what happened in like the first half of the of the hearing. So basically the petitioners brought up their witnesses and those witnesses basically alleged that they saw or they had a friend who had been coerced into voting for Bruins United on their phone or that Bruins United candidates had gone up to drunk girls and then asked them to vote for Bruins United. And then election board brought up its witnesses, which are two staffers from the election board office, but not the people who are responsible for sanctions. And it was really weird that they brought not the major players on election board up there. And it looked like we were going nowhere. And then it happened. Can we talk about the absurdity, though, of like election boards questioning? Because several times during the cross-examination, um, the petitioner was asking e-board staffers, about their opinions and they kept saying that's not relevant and like that they didn't have any real power on eboard and that those were all questions for the investigations director of eboard but who is the investigations director of eboard it's the person speaking on behalf of eboard so that entire section led to no answers until 
Judicial Board turned it around and was able to ask Matthew Dunham directly how the investigation process worked and what happened. And that is the real clincher in terms of evidence, was that the witness who was a bystander to watching someone's, like, right to vote in privacy or, like, seeing her friend get coerced to vote was also approached by Bruins United. And so, like, the real question was, if that was true and there was a first-hand like testimony to that for election board. Why didn't they also find Bruins United guilty of attempting to coerce votes, even if they didn't necessarily succeed for that one person? And that was the point at which everyone's head blew off. So just to give a bit of background, how judicial board hearings work are just like how you would see Think of basically like a Judge Judy case from TV. It, it's actually like that. Uh, I'm not joking. What happens is, you know, the petitioner is basically the prosecution. The defendant in this case was the election board. And the case that was up front of them was, did the election board do its due diligence in investigating these complaints of voter coercion? That was the first question. Second question was, did they adequately sanction people who were found to have infringed on students' right to vote in privacy? And how the process works is, you know, both sides give their opening statements and then witnesses come forth and, you know, their examinations by the prosecution brings forth with witness. Then they get questioned by the prosecution. Then the defendant asks their questions and the prosecution asks their questions again. And they keep doing this until all the prosecution's witnesses are done or the list of witnesses are completed. Then the defendant does the same thing with their witnesses, except in this case, they do the second examination after the prosecution does their stuff. After that, Chief Justice Nikki, or the Chief Justice of the Judicial Board, then gets to ask each side a couple questions. Think Judge Judy when she asks each side the questions. And then, you know, usually nothing interesting happens. We get a result, um, you know, a couple days later, and then a formal um, description of the ruling, you know, a week or two weeks later. Except this time, everything went wrong. The person who should have been questioned was the representative for the defendant side. So really... You know, so the investigations director, the one who, you know, slaps the sanctions on people and does the investigations, was questioning his staffers about his performance. And it was really awkward because whenever the prosecution was like, you know, did you guys investigate correctly? The defendant would just like, you know, object crazily. And they even had, you know, so I was sitting on the ground because it was a really crowded room. They had like a yellow index card with object written in caps, in capitals, letters. And they were like waving this around with each other to indicate when they wanted to object. And they were objecting to questions an obscene number of times because none of the questions were relevant because nobody relevant was the defendant's witness. And, you know, so like Liberty said, nothing was going anywhere. And then Nick Yu comes in and he goes in for the kill. He basically starts asking election board all the questions that we all kind of wanted to find out. Why did they have that cryptic Facebook post, you know, 10 minutes before the election results saying, oh, maybe we might like disqualify people if we get new evidence. And why did they not investigate you know, complaints of attempted voter coercion instead of this weird phrasing of infringement of voters' right to vote in privacy. And at the end of it, you know, election board decided, I think, just gave up and they just admitted that they did something wrong. And we were all just like, what? <laughs> Literally, that was all our reaction. Like, you know, Matt Dunham, after the end of it, he's like, you know, I think we... We we made a mistake. And we're all just like, we've been here for like an hour and a half and we were mating for this one moment for election board, basically just like jumping off the boat and like sentencing itself to what was already an expected ruling. And what was the ruling at the end of the day? So basically, 
the judicial board only took one day to issue its ruling because Ebor basically pled guilty the previous day. So they ordered the election board to investigate new allegations of voter privacy and voter coercion if evidence was provided and to further investigate claims of voter coercion that they had closed on that day already and to reopen an online forum for new complaints about voter coercion or anything else. And finally, it requested the election board to issue a reasonable sanction in sanction number 59, for which Bruins United had already received the three-hour campaign ban. So now J-Board is asking the E-Board to issue a reasonable sanction as opposed to the ban. So the original sanction was filed under the the violation of voters' right to vote and privacy, but now it's for attempted voter coercion. So my question is if there's really two types of sanctions that the e-board can issue to candidates. One being a limit on campaign time and the second being a disqualification of, of a candidate. Um, how does that work exactly when the election's already over? That's the interesting part. So it's not like the election board could suddenly be like, oh, we're going to sanction Bruins United for six hours of campaigning because the election's basically over. So that basically means that the election board either does nothing or disqualifies people. And that's where we get to the nitty-gritty stuff and the quite perplexing question of, do we even know who our council next year is? Well, I'm going to say first off, Claire Freelman was accused by people of voter coercion at the hearing. So if something substantiates from that, it could be very much possible that Claire Freelman herself is disqualified from the president position and we may need another election. Yeah. So that's... That's one empty position, and then you could uh, maybe assume that Bella Martin would be disqualified. I don't know. I, I think at the minimum, uh, Bella Martin should go. I, I mean, it's, it's clear that there's, there's evidence for it. It kind of was a catalyst for this entire process, and it, it's very clear that the student body is upset and something happened. And um, if the election board really wants to get its teeth back, they need to take a stand and do something about this. Because if nothing's done at all, then what are we all doing here? Well, I'm not here to have opinions, but <laughs> it's very complicated because I don't think election board necessarily will even disqualify Bella Martin. And I think a lot of students would be upset at that. But during the hearing, they made it clear that even though they were wrong to not also sanction Bruins United for an attempted vote voter coercion, they also made it clear that an attempt was not as bad as successfully doing it. They also stated that a disqualification was a really severe punishment that, like, they would need to think a long time before issuing, which is why I think, um, like, just being at the hearing, there seemed to be some disagreement just among the e-board members who were there and probably with the entire election board at large, which is what led to, like, the pithy three-hour sanction on results day and, like, this sense of disorganization Upon in like retrospect when looking at how they conducted the investigation with like a lot of moving parts in terms of who was interviewing and like who was making decisions. So I'm not sure that the J board order is going to be enough to push them in the direction of a disqualification. I think maybe they'll release new findings, but are going to say that like the, an attempt of voter coercion isn't worth a disqualification. Understanding that disqualifying a candidate is, is a very serious thing. But at the same time, a substantiated finding of attempting to coerce voters, which 
it seems like there's a fairly high burden of proof for the e-board to rule on anything. And so finding substantiated with enough evidence that they attempted to coerce people, it, I feel like if that's not serious enough to warrant disqualification, then, then what is? Because coercion is, is, a, is a very serious thing. And attempting to do it implies that it has been done before, implies that it exists in the background. How many other people maybe went through the same thing and are afraid to step forward because of threat of some sort of repercussion? I mean, it all exists in there. And to add to that, there, were, there wasn't just that one instant allegation of voter coercion. There were multiple allegations of voter coercion at the meeting. And there could be more people who complain. And there were like other complaints as well that weren't brought up at the hearing. So there's like a lot of allegations against Students United here. So that all adds up. And also to take into account the fact that Isabel Bach, one of the members of the election board, said that among the election board members, they had disagreements among themselves over, over whether they should disqualify a Bruins United, a candidate over voter co- attempted voter coercion. So that means they were kind of like thinking about it. Also, on that point, even though we're seeing all these allegations come forward, I mean, it's a very complicated process and there's a, there's a lot of moving parts. And it begs the question, there, there are so many students out there who might not even possibly know how all these regulations, how all these rules work, and that what Bruins United or what these candidates did to them was voter coercion. And these are stories that we don't see come forward. These are these are people that are not necessarily speaking up at these hearings. But the fact that even these one or few incidents exist and can be shown begs the question, are there more in the background? Are there more that are not being brought forward? And um, if so, it sounds like we have a pretty serious systemic problem that really needs to be treated severely. So not to dwell on this topic for too long, but one of the other things, other considerations that the election board unfortunately couldn't take into account was that people were intimidated about coming forth. Um, A lot of people in the judicial board hearing, the witnesses for the prosecution said they felt intimidated. They thought there was going to be some kind of, you know, people coming back after them. And in fact, one of the candidate's mothers, um, Bella Martin's mom, uh, you know, posted on Facebook saying, you know, she was upset that people were coming after her her daughter. And um, in one of the comments in that post said she was going to speak to a lawyer Monday. So that, recording this podcast Friday. So four days before, she's going to speak to a lawyer. And some of the witnesses were international students. So they were worried about, you know, legality. Would they be caught up in the law? And that that's a big consideration for them. And this whole election has now become ever more toxic because people are bringing in their parents, people are afraid of coming forth, and I guess people are attempting to coerce voters. I just, um, I also just don't want to accuse Bella Martin of bringing in her mother. Uh, we don't know whether she brought in her mother or if her mother brought in herself. Because, like, <laughs> as of now, all of that evidence, those posts um, her mom right. wrote, um, those comments have been deleted. At the same time, regardless of who brought in who or who decided to get involved, I think this demonstrates even more, in my opinion, why the e-board needs to issue a strong ruling. Because at the end of the day, no matter what happened or how this played out, what you have is a student who has access to um, institutional privilege. And that privilege is being wielded in some way that, regardless of intention, because I want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, is intimidating and silencing students who may not have access to that same privilege and that same kind of institutional support. And at the end of the day, what is the university's role? What is the e-board's role? What are these institutions' role if not to support 
students who do not have access to that same institutional privilege. And that is why we need a strong issue, a, a strong ruling on this. We need them to come forth and say, you can't just do whatever you want. We're going to take a stand and we're going to make sure that elections are free and fair and that people can't just draw from their privilege to make sure that these same kind of things are swept under the rug or they get off with a slap on the wrist because that's unacceptable. Well, I think we'll be hearing a lot, lot more about USAC in the next few days. So I think we should leave it at that. Okay, well, what is your over-under on us talking about USAC again next week? <laughs> I think I'm going to have to look for Matt Dunham's next kicker line for, <laughs> for what I'm going to say next week. But we're going to stop for a quick break. And after that, we'll be talking about something completely different. <laughs> Man, I haven't lived on the hill for like three years. I miss dining halls. So do I, even though I live on the hill. Actually, I don't because I've been eating some great food off the hill, but a lot of students have been missing food on the hill, and that's not because they all decided to just have a mass exodus off the hill. Um, Liberty, you want to give us the rundown of what's happening? There was a three-day strike this week, and students were upset. What was that about labor solidarity? Silence. So the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, Local 3299... Otherwise known as AFSME. That's how we'll be referring to it for the rest of this podcast. Um, They represent service workers, such as custodians and food service workers. Um, That union was on a strike um, from Monday to Wednesday this week, during which time all the quick service restaurants on the Hill were out of business... (laughs) And um, there also were, like, pauses in delivery service on campus. There were just, like, a few, you know, amenities that were discontinued for three days. So among the things that were missing were dining halls had limited hours. Trash bags were kind of left on the Bruin Walk during night. We also saw some people being woken up because there were strikes. Um, there were, there was, the Bruin Plaza was alive with celebration, with activism, with a lot of green, um, because that was, those are AFSME's colors. And yeah, students had mixed feelings about this. Um, Chris, what did you see and what did you hear? Well, you know, I'll tell you, Kishav, um, I, I read actually submission we published. We, we, we had a letter to the editor. And essentially the argument was, I woke up at six in the morning, so um, free speech went too far. <laughs> and at the end of the day, here's what I'm going to say. Regardless of how you feel about what the workers are protesting about, regardless of you, about how you feel about whether their wages are too high or whether they're, or they're too low, whether you agree with them or you don't, what your politics are, at the end of the day, what you should be supporting and what you need to be supporting is the right to protest and the right to make your voice heard. Because that is what they're doing ultimately. They're standing up against a large institution and saying our needs, our voice needs to be heard. And regardless of whether you agree with them, that is something that I think is important. And that is something that, you know, at the end of the day, these were their amenities, okay? Three days, you can live with uh, subpar eggs, okay? Um, and if you can't, I th- really think you need to reevaluate um, why you're here. Wait, they were serving eggs on the hill? 
I, I thought so. Um, I, I could be incorrect. I don't live on the hill either. I'm yeah, like, here's, on this. <laughs> here's the thing is I actually only ate on the hill once during the strikes. Um, also, my, my dad came the week prior and gave me some food, so I was sort of eating that. I also ate a Blades Pizza for the oh, first okay. time. So maybe we should also talk about why AFSCME and some related unions were protesting. Um, and it's basically about the fact that AFSCME and the UC have been negotiating a contract for about a year, maybe a little bit longer or shorter than that. Um, and in that time have not been able to compromise on two very different sets of proposed terms. Namely, I think the biggest one is AFSCME wants, um, I think it's 6% pay raises mm-hmm. um, every year, and the UC only is offering 3%. There's also some um, discrepancies on what the UC is offering for people's pensions, the retirement age, and a cap um, on health benefit. Um, co-pay rising. Mm. Um, and so that's what the protest was about. And in solidarity, other unions took part, including the... UAW, which is the, I believe, United Auto Workers. There was also UPTE, which is which represents TAs and lecturers. Um, there was also the California Nurses Association, which represents nurses. Um, this was basically a statewide strike, and there have been statewide ramifications. Some of the things have been that Kamala Harris, the commencement speaker for oh, UC yeah. Berkeley, she pulled out early this week. And just today, Ted Lieu, the commencement speaker for UCLA Law, also pulled out. And this was part of the union's sort of drawing attention to themselves, saying, you know, commencement speakers, you should boycott the university's commencement events, um, you know, in solidarity with workers. And that's a pretty tact- tactical move because most of these commencement speakers are politicians, and they're not going to say no to the common worker. I guess for context, a similar thing happened in the night. I think 2008, where union workers called upon Bill Clinton to not attend UCLA's commencement, and he was like, okay. And then Gene Block had to give the commencement speech. I feel like Gene Block's commencement speech would have been better than, than Bill Clinton's. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Bill Clinton speaks very well. <laughs> but Gene is Gene. Uh, Gene. Gene is Gene, is Gene, but, you know, it's Slick Willy, okay? <laughs> so I guess at the end of the day, what students are going to be asking about this strike and future strikes is, what does it matter to us or me? I'm speaking as if the general Joe Schmo Bruin on Bruin Walk. You're acting as if students are actually going to care after the end of this week. And I, I wonder, should students care at the end of this week? Um, Yeah, they should. But will they? No, they won't. And I guess that's the crux of this. Why won't students care? We've seen people complaining about being woken up at 6 a.m. We've seen people complain about... You know, not getting food at the dining halls. I was actually walking to Math Sciences and somebody was complaining saying, you know, I would get behind them if they didn't have so many letters in their acronym. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? I I think what goes to the crux of why students don't care is because a lot of these amenities, a lot of these things, they operate in the background. Mm-hmm. And from the moment you're here at UCLA, you don't really see all the work and all the effort that goes in to making your experience here great because it's not visible. It's not visible who takes out the 200 trash cans that are on every single floor of YRL every night. It's not visible all the workers that go into making your food. But the experience here is so great, and it's because of all these workers. And I think a good way toward going towards making people care and making people get behind them is really bringing to the forefront and making visible exactly all the things these workers do on campus, which I think the strike does in part because people had to live without their amenities. But it also goes towards 
educating students from the moment they get here, all the different work that goes into making their experience here a good one. That's true, but what does UCLA have to gain from <laughs> exposing students to the people behind their comfort? Um, I mean, like, I think that maybe speaks to that divide between, like, the people who provide services and the people who are educating students. And, like, I think it was really cool that a lot of TAs and even professors did stand in solidarity, did not want to ca- cross the picket line and, like, cancel classes or allowed students to skip class. And, I mean, I think that shows how labor issues on campus are coalescing across different levels of work on campus and how that might really change the way UC has to pay attention. Because, like, up till now, the force behind, like, AFSME hasn't been quite as loud or visible as it was this past week, which is what really impressed me was that, like, I saw a lot of people join the picket line who outside of AFSME. Like, the fact that nurses were out there, the fact that UCLA had to, like, hire temporary workers to make sure everything in the hospital was still running. Um, the fact that like people had to be designated to like help out in case of emergencies and like break the picket line, but like still express their solidarity. Like all of that really points to the fact that there is more worker solidarity on campus and that that's increasing from what we've seen in the past. At the same time, um, and I, I was also impressed by the amount of different groups that were out there, including student workers. There were some student workers striking, and I know that on campus especially that there were some meetings meant about organizing and educating students about this. But I think um, where it can be improved in the long run is reaching out to students more, is, is advertising that. Because um, I know a lot of people that I talked to uh, said, I want to get involved, but how do I do it? Well, I guess my question is, and I'm a bit cynical here, is will things change? Like, will, does UC have, like, the funds to be able to, like, increase worker, which they, they should, but will they, with the situation there, and increase workers' wages? It seems, maybe they will a bit, but it seems largely unlikely. It's all a spreadsheet game. Um, so we members of the editorial board went and met Kevin Daly on one of the candidates for u.s senator representing california and we asked them this question about like what is how do you think the uc should address you know workers complaints and his claim was you know uc should prioritize them and we're like where's the money coming from and he's like well you got to prioritize it and that's where the money comes from and it doesn't need to be a zero-sum game between students and workers and that's the picture that the uc has but but it will be unless like they have extra money to get exactly money has to come from somewhere exactly and well actually i mean like i just also want to point this out like the uc's budget a lot of it is pretty inflexible because Mm -hmm. of prior commitments namely the pension which i don't understand i'm not going to pretend how pension plans work but it seems that the UC has a lot of money tied up in paying people's retirement. <laughs> right. So the UC has a very inequitable pension system. It actually cut pensions, I believe, in early or near 2010. And then it suddenly tried to bring it up. And that's actually one of the complaints that one of the workers have. But before we dive into all of this, I just want to end with one last question. Are we going to be seeing more strikes soon? Maybe not soon. But that could happen months down the line. I don't know. It's really hard to tell. I think that the longer negotiations, you know, stagnate, 
the more frequent strikes could become, like something more serious. Like what happened this past week, I think, was a demonstration of how committed the union is to standing by its proposal um, and standing by the like improvements it wants to see in its future contract. And I think that, like, if the UC does not respond to that well, and, like, I think just as an aside, like, the UC does not approve of them using striking as a method of, like, bargaining. But, you know, if the UC doesn't respond um, at all, <laughs> which is kind of, like, what they the what the unions have accused the UC of the past of, like, ign- kind of ignoring them or, like, not prioritizing negotiations, then I think, like, it definitely could go on for longer and more severely than, like, what we saw. Um, yeah, I, I second that. I think it's very clear that this time around was a, a definite demonstration of power and a demonstration of how serious um, workers are taking uh, what is going on right now. And I think it was an affirmation that they're not going to go away. And I mean, there's been protests before. It's been going on for a while. Um, and I think uh, there's going to continue to be those protests. But now we've seen a very clear escalation. And I, it demonstrates clearly that there could be more to come if things don't change. Well, folks, looks like we are, we're all going to be woken up at 6 a.m. again sometime soon. And I won't be sad about that, unlike some other people. Okay, folks, we'll catch you all next week in our next No Offense podcast.